You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. All right, I'm going to pray and we'll get started. Father, we invite you here today. We want you to come and to reveal yourself to us. We want you, Holy Spirit, to come and to work in our lives in a way that brings healing and refreshment and comfort and trust and faith. And God, we need you to do that work upon us. And so I pray, God, that each of us here today would surrender ourselves to that work. And we want you to come and to speak to us through your word. And we pray you do that right now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, any, anybody seen Stranger Than Fiction? One of my favorite films of all time. If you haven't seen it, you seriously need to go and watch that this week, okay? Stranger Than Fiction introduces us to a character named Harold Crick, and he's this pretty average, normal guy. Uh, he's an IRS auditor, uh, so maybe that's not normal, but otherwise, it's pretty normal life that he leads. He's very interested as an IRS auditor in order, Everything that he does is calculated down to the very second. He even counts the number of toothbrush strokes that he he makes as he brushes his teeth. But one day, his whole life begins to unravel when he starts hearing the voice of a narrator in his head describing his every move as it happens. And uh, and this kind of gets really freaky for him when the narrator says, Little did he know, and it's this phrase, and, and, and I can't remember the exact thing that the narrator says, but it's something like, little did he know he was going to get hit by a Mack truck that day, or something like that, right? He's like, what? What are we doing here? And so at first he thinks that he's crazy, but eventually it occurs to him that this might be a real narrator. And so Harold reaches out to a literature professor at a university to find out if he might know what book Harold is in. And after a long interview, the, uh, the professor concludes he doesn't know which exact novel this is, but he knows that it's a tragedy, and Harold is going to die both suddenly and unexpectedly. And so this knowledge, it transforms Harold's life. You'd think he would just go reclusive at that point. But for the first time, Harold finally begins to live. He learns new things. He meets new people. He takes risks, all because he believed that he was in a tragedy and his life was almost over. And the reason why I'm telling you this story is because it's a fascinating look at the fact that how you live is based on what story you believe you are in. What story do you believe you're in? It's an important question for any time in our life, but it's especially important for us when we suffer. And notice that I said when we suffer, because we all know this is not a matter of if, but when. When we suffer, we have a tendency not to examine what story we thought we were in. Rather, we tend to ask why. Why is this happening? And it's usually because we assumed that the story we were in wasn't going to go this way. In fact, that's much of what lies behind today's question. Today's question, how could a loving God allow so much suffering? I want you to think about this question for just a minute. What assumption is this question making? It's assuming that if God were loving, he could not allow suffering, right? Why is it making that assumption? Because we believe that suffering can't possibly have a greater purpose. As Americans, we believe that our purpose in life is to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. The opposite of suffering, right? And there's nothing wrong with seeking those things, of course. But it gets messed up when those things cease to be pursuits and they become rights. We think that the universe owes us life, liberty, and happiness. And then we go, okay, well, maybe if I believe in God, then he does too. And that's the story 
that we believe we are in. The one where we end up happily ever after, whatever that means to each of us individually. And I'm sure that you don't need me to actually prove to you that that's the story that we believe that we're in, but just in case, let me just offer you one quick example. In the United States, chronic pain is estimated to cost us $635 billion a year. That was in 2012 when this study was done. And that includes both the health care to cover it and the medication to manage it. So as Tim Keller says, Western society's highest goal is to prevent suffering. I think we can all agree that's true. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that we should pursue suffering, that it's not good to minimize suffering. My point is we clearly don't believe that suffering is part of the story that we should be existing inside of. We certainly don't believe that God could be both sovereign and loving if suffering exists in his story. But friends, the the truth is actually more beautiful and freeing than that. God is so sovereign and so loving that he can even take something as terrible as suffering and use it for good. That's the story of the Bible. And in the Bible, we find a case study of suffering that I want to look at with you today. In the book of Job, if, if you would turn there with me, if you have a Bible, there's also one in the seat back in front of you. We're going to cover nearly the entire book of Job today, but don't worry, we'll, we'll jump around a little bit because we don't have time to go through every one of its 42 chapters, okay? But I do want to start at the beginning as we look at this story of suffering. Verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, very important. One who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, maybe it's their birthday, I don't know, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Okay, so here's Job. Job is the richest dude in the East. We don't know where Uz is. It's probably somewhere around what would have been Edom in that day. In the Middle East, he's blessed beyond the wildest dreams of an ancient person. I mean, did you see how many camels he had? You guys are like, man, I'm coveting Job's camels. I want that many camels. No. Uh, but, But here's a guy who's described as blameless, as upright, super righteous, Right? As one commentator says, he loves God and his family so much that he offers sacrifices for the hypothetical sins of his children. That dude is upright. But this idyllic reality is about to change. Job is about to suffer. Verse 6. And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, if you were with us this past summer when we looked at Psalm 82, you might remember that we talked about the fact that these sons of God, which we read about here as well, are not sons of God in the way that Jesus is the one and only eternal, uncreated Son of God. But these are spiritual beings that God created as his counsel in the heavenly court. And so God sits as the ruler and judge over all of creation, and he shares his rule of heaven with them. And some of you, as we're reading this, you're like, hold up, what? He he shares his rule with Satan? Right? Is everybody asking that question? I hope you are, because you should be. That's, That's what I was asking. This is admittedly confusing. And there's a whole lot of speculation around what to make of it, but I think that Tim Mackey is helpful when he says, Satan 
is not a proper name like our modern translations that use the capital letter S might lead us to conclude. The Hebrew word Satan is a descriptive noun describing any person that stands opposed to or as an adversary to someone else. Okay, so I'm going to pronounce Satan, Satan, because that's the Hebrew word that we are reading here. And we're going to think of this person uh, maybe not as necessarily the same person as we read about in the New Testament called the devil. Uh, Mackie goes on to point out that the word Satan is used of a messenger sent from God in Numbers 22.22 and in other places multiple times showing us that there's no reason to believe that this has to be that same character called the devil in the New Testament. So why is this adversary here? The, the picture we're being given is of a courtroom, and these sons of God are weighing the scales to see if justice is carry, being carried out under God's rule. Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from waking, walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Again, whoa, 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 whoa. Is God uh, tempting Satan, <laughs> this, this spiritual being, Satan, to make Job suffer? What's going on? Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Now remember, this Satan is an accuser. He's like a, a prosecuting attorney. And he's suggesting that it is unjust for God to bless Job because it messes with Job's motives. He says to God, the only reason Job loves you is because you give him goodies. You give him all that stuff. He says, if you didn't bless him, he wouldn't obey you. He wouldn't love you. He would hate you. And we have to know this is the whole point of the book of Job. This is the whole point of what is about to happen. Job, the, the book of Job seems less interested in answering this bigger question of why does God allow good people to suffer and more interested in answering, is it good for God to bless those who do good? This is totally upside down from the way that we see things because everyone, all of us assume the answer is yes, of course God should bless those who do good. We think, oh, that's justice. And our temptation when we suffer then is to assume that we deserve good because we believe that we are good people. And that temptation leads to our desire to hate God, to blame God for our suffering. But notice how God responds to this proposal. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. In verse 11, Satan, Satan told God to stretch out his hand. But here God says, you have permission to stretch out your hand. Only he gives him a limitation. You can't touch Job himself. You only get to touch the stuff that Job has. And this is crucial for understanding suffering in general. God only permits it when it falls within accomplishing his greater purpose. God is saying that he can prove through a weak and feeble man that he is worthy of worship even in the midst of suffering and to show that it is right for him to bless those who obey him. Verse 13 and there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. 
While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So Job is like the Jeff Bezos of the ancient Near East, okay? He, he has it all. He's the richest dude that anyone has ever seen. But more than that, he's prospering because God is blessing him for living as a righteous man. His family is growing. His household, his possessions, unimaginable prosperity. Things are going great. But when this Satan is allowed to have barely restrained access to Job, his, his whole life falls apart. And, and the messengers that visit Job here would be like someone coming to Jeff Bezos and saying, all your servers just went down. Amazon Web Services is gone for good, right? And then another person walks in. All your de- delivery vans were stolen, right? And then another comes in. All the warehouses spontaneously combusted. And another comes and tells him, all your employees were murdered, and another says, all your stocks are, have plummeted. They're, they're worthless. And finally, another comes in and says, every person you have ever loved was together having a great party, and a tornado swept in and killed them all. Job has gone from unimaginable prosperity to unimaginable suffering. How would you respond to this? How have you responded when you've suffered? How does Job respond? Verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Man, this is shocking, isn't it? When we suffer, we are so easily tempted to sin. We're tempted to accuse God of sinning, right? We're tempted to believe that God would not allow us to suffer if he were sovereign and if he were loving. We're tempted to believe that we deserve good and God cannot use suffering for good. But that's not how Job responds. By tearing his clothes and shaving his head, Job is grieving his loss, and he's showing that he has nothing. But he's also showing us that the right response to suffering is worship. Because if God is God, he's God when times are good or when they are bad. He does not change even when our circumstances change. Job tells us here why he worships. He worships because God gave him everything he had as a gracious gift that he knew that he didn't deserve. And so Job says, God has the right to take it away. Does Job continue to worship? Well, Satan comes back to the court of God and has this interaction with him and God tells him he, that's Job, still holds fast his integrity. This is chapter 2. 
Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason, then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he, that's Job, took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. First, the accuser destroyed Job's property and his children. Now, he destroys his health. And this is the epitome of misery. Job is in an ash heap, scraping the sores over his body with a piece of broken pottery. I mean, just think about how absurdly pathetic this is. It would be funny, wouldn't it, if if it weren't painfully sad. When we suffer, we might find ourselves in our own proverbial ash heap, scraping our own proverbial sores with our own proverbial pottery, struggling to hold on to hope that maybe, just maybe, something better lies ahead. Oftentimes we're there and we're, you know, licking our wounds. And we can't tell which story we are in because we are so overwhelmed with the pain of where we are. And in those moments, time just kind of seems to stand still and get darker and darker. And what we need in those moments is some encouragement. We need someone to come and help us lift our eyes up and see the sun out there on the horizon somewhere. And Job's wife could be that person. She comes up to him in verse 9 and says, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Wow. She literally echoes the voice of the adversary from verse 5. But Job doesn't take the bait. Verse 10. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Girl, you're being a fool. You're being a fool. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job continues to worship. He says that God is worthy even when he permits evil to happen to us. Now, Job seems to think that this evil is directly from God. We're told elsewhere that evil is incompatible with God's character, that he doesn't do evil. So don't make the mistake of, uh, you know, Job's theology. Sorry, let me say that again. Don't mistake Job's theology for the theology of the Bible. But even with his bad theology, Job worships, and as he does, Four of his friends come and sit in the ash heap with him. They cry with him. They call out to God with him. In some ways, it's actually a beautiful picture of what we need when we suffer. And as the pain of his suffering is felt, Job begins to lament. And that's what we see in chapter 3, a long lament from Job. Verse 11, I think, characterizes it well. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? Job is not cursing God. He's cursing the day that he was born. And there's a big difference between those two things. The difference between wishing that you had never been born which can be a way of expressing your deep-seated desire to be rid of your pain, and the difference between that and wishing that you were dead. See, because God gives us life, he's the one who's in charge of our beginning and our ending. 
I once had a friend who was suicidal, and the thing that freed her from thinking those thoughts was when someone told her, let your maker be your taker. Kind of kitschy, right? But very meaningful. Very meaningful. We might suffer so greatly that we loathe life, but we're never to dream of taking it because our life comes from God and it belongs to God. And Job brings his complaint before God as a way of expressing his pain, but also as a way of saying, I don't understand. I just don't get it, God. When we suffer, when we see evil, complaining to God is both right and good. Did you know that? Do you give yourself permission to complain to God? You should. It's a gift that he gives us, this this lamenting process. We complain to him and we call on him to make things right. This is very different from just outright judging him. We don't blame him for evil. We ask him to address it because he's so loving, because he's so powerful. And once Job has lamented for the next 34 chapters, by the way, we aren't going to read all those, don't worry, okay? For the next 34 chapters, we see Job and his friends go round and around and around trying to make sense of Job's suffering. His friends in all of that are not very good friends. Their only explanation is probably pretty close to what most evangelical Christians tend to give when someone suffers. You know what they tell Job? They say, Job, this is all your fault. Job, God's a God of justice. Clearly you wouldn't be suffering if you hadn't done something wrong. It's like this Radiohead song comes to mind. You do it to yourself, you do. And that's what really hurts. You do it to yourself, just you. You and no one else. And I think that we tend to give this sort of answer because it is one explanation, right? It's one explanation. Sometimes we do suffer because we've done something wrong. God allows us to experience the consequences of our sin, but also sometimes God does discipline us for sin. He does sometimes show us his judgment. But other times we go through suffering that's just simply inexplicable. And while Job's friends tell him that he's at fault, Job knows that something different is going on. He tells them repeatedly, I'm blameless, I'm upright. And so in various ways, he argues with his friends and continues to ask this question, how could a loving God allow so much suffering? Especially, though, he asks the question, how could he allow a righteous person to suffer? But you know, the book of Job never really answers those questions. It'd be very satisfying if it did, but it doesn't. Instead, by the end of the book, this huge storm appears and finally God responds. Here's what he says in verse 38. And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Who measured it out? On what were its bases sunk, and who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Can you possibly imagine how terrifying this would be? To meet with the living God in this way. And God basically says to Job, who are you? Where were you? When I created the earth. 
And he describes a time when all these spiritual beings were present, these these sons of God, and they looked on and they celebrated as God made these wonderful things. And God says, have you, Job, have you shown your great wisdom and power by making all of this work together? Later, he illustrates this by by describing the constellations up in the sky. He says, Job, can you bind the chains of Pilates or loose the cords of Orion? Is all of this in your hand, Job? God's point is, he is the only one who can. He is the only one who knows every last detail of the universe. Jesus even tells us that God knows the number of hairs on your head, which is easier for him to do with me than it might be with you, but he knows everything, all things, down to the very last detail. And we're meant to take away from this that just like we cannot possibly understand how God made everything and keeps it sustained, we cannot possibly understand why God allows us to suffer. You know, the the Satan, the Satan character, isn't talked about or explained for the rest of the book. Because whoever that character is, he isn't at the center of what this story is about. He's not at the center of this greater story that you and I are all a part of. This story, the biblical story, is not primarily about good versus evil. This story is about God being God. Suffering is about God. Prosperity is about God. Everything is about God. Which is why we are incapable and unqualified to judge him. And that's where the book ends in chapter 40. In the the New International Version, it says, The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. You can just picture Job doing this, right? Just put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. And then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you. And shall you answer me? Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? As Tim Keller says of this passage, God is showing Job that since he does not have the power to be the sovereign judge of the universe, he does not have the right. Or put another way, since Job does not have the power to be the judge of God, he does not have the right. Job is being forced to acknowledge that he cannot rule the universe, which causes him to place his trust in the God who can. Do you see how freeing this is? Do you see how liberating it is? We find freedom from the problem of suffering when we trust God with suffering. It frees us to allow suffering to fulfill its redemptive purpose because while suffering was not a part of God's original design, he is so good and loving that he uses it for our benefit. The famous problem of evil is that if God is both sovereign and loving, then why does evil exist? And here is the assumption behind that question. If we can't see any good reason for suffering to exist, then there must not be any good reason. We, friends, are too great in our own eyes, as Job says. 
We are too proud. We actually believe we are capable of knowing. God says we aren't. Is God justified? Job says we are not right to even pose that question, let alone answer it. We are not God. If God is God, if if he actually exists, friends, if we believe in him, then his greatness is beyond what we can possibly fathom. As Psalm 145 tells us, his greatness is unsearchable. We will never find the end of it. We cannot wrap our minds around it. That is how great our God is. So who are we to judge him? That's the lesson of the story of Job. But you know, there's a missing piece to all of this, one that I've deliberately left out this whole time. See, the story that we're in is not merely God made everything, sin broke everything, therefore don't judge God for your suffering, which is kind of the message that I've presented to you so far. But you see, nothing makes sense apart from Jesus, especially not the story we are in or the suffering that we experience in the middle of it. The story we are in is shaped by Jesus' death and resurrection. And at the end of Luke's gospel, we're told a story that takes place immediately after the resurrection of Jesus. It's the first Easter. And in Luke chapter 24, we find the story of the road to Emmaus. You might be familiar with this story. Here's what it says. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Very ironic, right? He's right there with them. They're talking about him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? (laughs) Jesus is funny. What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. These guys cannot fathom a reason why God would have allowed the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ, the Redeemer, to suffer and die. They cannot wrap their minds around that. And we might ask similar questions. How could God possibly choose to become human? How could God possibly choose to subject himself to evil? How could God possibly choose to suffer? And not just any suffering, but the most severe suffering that any human being could ever experience. The Bible says that he was despised and rejected by all of those around him. He was treated as an outcast and as a reject. You hear these horror stories of people being scapegoated and canceled on social media. Well, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the most righteous person to have ever lived, he experienced scapegoating by like no one before or since. He was beaten and tortured so badly 
that he became disfigured, the Bible says, to the point where he didn't look like himself anymore. He didn't even look human anymore, the Bible says. But that was just the beginning. He was cast outside of the city, a sign of revulsion and expulsion. He was stripped naked, exposing him and shaming him for all to see. And then he was nailed to a Roman crossbar and hung up to slowly bleed out and asphyxiate before the whole city. Friends, in Jesus Christ, God died for us, but he suffered with us. You get that? He suffered with us. When you suffer evil in this life, don't judge God, because God judged evil through his suffering. These disciples on the road that first Easter, they just couldn't see Jesus as he stood there right before them. Right before them. They, they couldn't see how God could have chosen to suffer like this. And more than that, they couldn't see because they thought that the story was over. They couldn't make sense of the story that they were living in. And yet, they, though they thought the story was over, they were wrong. And so Jesus lovingly rebukes them. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, slow in heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, that's the Messiah, the chosen one, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus says, not only is this story not over, this was God's plan all along. And he shows these dudes from all of the Old Testament scriptures how God planned to come and suffer. And he, told, he shows them the reason for it. And it's because his suffering would lead to glory. This is the pattern of the Christian life, friends. Suffering leading to glory, death, and resurrection. If you're a Christian, you have taken up your cross. You have literally signed up for suffering. Did you know that? Maybe someone should have told you that when you became a Christian. I don't know. We enter into the sufferings of Jesus when we surrender our lives to follow him. We don't know what that's going to entail. It might mean giving up what you once held dear. It might mean persecution. It might mean being reviled like he was reviled. Why would we do that? Why would we sign up for that? Because unlike these disciples on that first Easter, we know that the story isn't over. Amen? We know the story isn't over. We know that Jesus will return to finally judge evil, remove sin and suffering and death once for all. We know that resurrection is our final destination. We know that eternal life with God is how this story that we are in ends. In fact, this story that we are in, friends, it never ends. Amen? And so we can suffer. Because as with Jesus, glory awaits us. The glory of God. And so for, of all people, Christians are more prepared for suffering than any other. But we are also more hopeful despite our suffering. Remember, death is a pattern of Christian life, but so is resurrection. See, it doesn't end there. It's, it's, it's not, oh boy, I guess we have to sit around and suffer till we see the resurrection. It's not, it's not just that, because that doesn't really sound great, does it? It's not the full picture, because God offers us abundant life now, whether we're suffering or not. God offers us himself now. 
And through his presence in our lives, he uses our suffering for a purpose to prove the genuineness of our faith and make us more like Jesus. That's how much he loves us. C.S. Lewis is famous for having said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts to us in our pain. And I can testify that that is true in my own life. Probably the greatest pain, the greatest suffering I experienced was actually going through and walking with my dad as he suffered and died. Uh, October 13th marked the fifth anniversary of his passing. And at the time, I was on sabbatical. I was in Hawaii for my sister-in-law's wedding. We were having a great time, and one night I get a call from my mom who says, my dad had woken up that morning and said that he was going home to be with the Lord. He just knew. Don't know how. My dad was a strong Christian. He was 86 years old. He had lived an incredibly full life. And somehow that morning, he just woke up and, and he knew that he was going to die very soon. And so I got on a plane and I went down to Claremont in California and I went to visit them. My dad had developed Parkinson's disease very rapidly and suffered through it for over five years leading up to his death. And he was a man whose legacy was loving God, trusting in him, wanting to live a life that was glorifying to him. And he was a man who deeply loved people and was constantly sacrificing himself in order to give anything he could, himself, his resources, for the sake of loving others. He wasn't a perfect man, but much like Job, he was upright, you know? And because I was on sabbatical, I was free to be with Dad for those final 10 days of his life. I was, I was able to basically be his hospice nurse when the, the other nurses weren't there. And things in, in those last few days, they begin beautifully. Um, the family was there. We were all around his bed. Friends came, and we were singing worship songs. We were praying with him. We were reading scripture. He had kind of given us a liturgy <laughs> of all these different things that he wanted uh, at the end. And in this, as we were doing these things, as we were singing and praying and, and being present with him, reading scripture, he was clinging to hope in God's love. And he was so at peace amid all of this suffering. His organs are failing. He's in deep, deep pain. But he didn't want any medical interventions. And we're committed to carrying out his wishes in that and letting him die naturally and within a few days, he had deteriorated to the point where he was unresponsive, but he was clearly suffering. He had labored breathing. His body was convulsing. It was so hard to watch the whole time. I was an emotional wreck. I was crying like a baby all day, every day. I never lost someone who was so close to me before. And and though by the grace of God he didn't suffer long, he did suffer. And so every day I was just pleading with God, like, Lord, please, please, give him relief. Lord, please take him home. Have mercy. It seemed to go on forever. Those days just lasted so long. I got so angry, to be honest with you, so angry. But here's the thing, I also experienced an extra measure of God's presence in ways that I haven't before or since. In the weight of that room, as I stood by his bed, And though I was deep in grief, I never lost hope. I was in my ash heap scraping my sores, you know. 
with that broken pottery, but I was holding on to something that was just as sure as the death that I was witnessing. Resurrection hope. I was holding on to the presence of God, and, and by His grace, I was able to finally be there with my mom as my dad took his last breath. And as we were talking about this subject of suffering, Bill, our family ministry director, who's downstairs with the kids right now, he said to me, you know, our brief lifetimes are the only time in our eternal existence with God where we experience suffering. Indeed, the suffering we experience in this life is painful, but it is brief compared to eternity. And it is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. Let's pray and respond to God together. Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus into this broken world to not just suffer for us, but to suffer with us. And we thank you for the promises that give us hope when we do suffer. Thank you for your presence, uh, the presence of your spirit that is dwelling in us when we do suffer. Thank you that this story is not over. And thank you, Jesus, that in the end, you put an end to all suffering and death and evil. Help us today to cling to the hope that we find only in you. We ask it in your name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.